Well, good morning, Encounter Church. Go ahead and grab your copy of God's Word and make your way to Matthew uh, chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. Uh, you might even just go, go ahead and stick a bookmark there because we'll be uh, hanging out in this section of uh, the Bible for several months uh, going forward. But Matthew chapter 5, if you're uh, unfamiliar exactly uh, where that is, you'll find it there in the New Testament uh, toward the back of the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 5. It's good to be able to gather uh, as a church family, isn't it, uh, to be here together. And certainly for those who are watching online, who are part of our local church body, uh, we miss you here. Uh, we do pray for you and look forward to when uh, you can join with us in person again. I know there are some people who aren't uh, a part of our church and watch from other areas, and uh, we welcome you also this morning and hope that you can find a local church to be involved with as well. So Matthew chapter 5, follow along with me as I read, starting there in verse uh, 1 through 12. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and he sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you, because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Well, we live in a world where pictures and visions and ideas of what people believe to be the good life are put before us all day long. Right? Advertisements and commercials and billboards, they are constantly trying to help us envision what, in their minds, the good life is. For example, this time of year, uh, if you watch any bit of television, especially on those cold winter days, it seems like we notice the cruise vacation advertisements a little bit more, don't we? And so there, as we are shivering under our blankets watching the sports game, and we see the cruise line come on, and we think, that looks like the good life to me, right? Or maybe it's, um, maybe it's retirement and financial planning, right? Those retirement and financial planning commercials that, that tell us we should start preparing now so that we, too, can, can spend the final 20 25 years of our life, or however long, sitting on a dock by a lake and living the good life, right? They're trying to kind of 
tap into that. And they're trying to say, this is what the good life looks like. Or maybe it's a restaurant saying, eat here and you'll be filled, right? This is good food to experience the good life. Or maybe for some reason uh, you are, you've been wronged in the past or you've been in some sort of accident and you've experienced an injury. And so the lawyer says, call me and I'll give you the good life, right? And all of us right now are thinking of the hammer, aren't we? In our minds, we're thinking that lawyer, it's interesting how the lawyer says, I will t- I'll hammer someone else <laughs> so you can have the good life, right? As, as if the good life for you comes at someone else's expense. The good life. I think all of us want to experience the good life. We, in, in our hearts, we have a desire for a happy life, a flourishing life. And yet, for those of us who fall in the, into the trap of believing what the world offers to us as the good life, it seems more often than not, we find ourselves just frustrated. Right? Because for a moment, maybe that good life does seem good, but it doesn't last, does it? Right? You, you come back from the cruise, and it's still 10 degrees outside. You finally reach retirement age, and you get news from your doctor. And you realize, I'm not going to be able to finish my days out sitting on the dock by the lake. Or maybe you believe the lie that you would find the good life in getting the perfect job, and then you finally get the perfect job, and you realize that your boss is a jerk. And you're like, this, this isn't it. Well, this morning we are, this is part two, right? We began the Beatitudes last Sunday talking about the way of the happy life, the way of happiness. And what we see here is Jesus is inviting us into what. He has laid out for us what is the good life, but it runs counter to what the world tells us is the good life. It doesn't look anything like what the world promotes and what the world advertises to us. In fact, it kind of has a way of turning a lot of our ideas of the good life on its head. And yet Jesus, as he invited the disciples there, Leading up to the Sermon on the Mount, as he invited the disciples, Jesus said, come and follow me. Come and follow me. And, and that same invitation is extended to us. And where we, we answer that call, we answer that invitation to leave the old ideas, the old ways, the old advertisements, all of the old promises behind to enter into a life of flourishing we learned last week that that word blessed there gives us this picture of flourishing, even in the midst of hardship. That there is flourishing that is available to us. It doesn't look like what the world describes for us as flourishing, but it is flourishing, and and it does fulfill that promise that Jesus gave us there in John 10, where Jesus said, I've come to give life and to give the full life. A full life, even when the world's promises only turn to be, they only turn up to be empty. And so last week we went through several of those early 
Beatitudes is what we made it through. And you might remember the, the big idea. Again, we'll continue with this big idea. And certainly with communion, we, we will see this to be so true that Jesus is the way of happiness. That Jesus is the way of happiness. That's why Jesus says, come and follow me. Right? Turn aside following the world. But instead, Jesus says, come and follow me and I will teach you how to live. So he invites us into this way of happiness. And last week we looked at several of, of those early beatitudes, the poor in spirit. We saw those who mourn will be comforted. We also saw blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. We talked about that last week. And, and here now we find ourselves in verse 6. In verse 6, where Jesus tells us, he says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. And in a similar fashion that we did last week, there will be, and I prayed this this morning, that, that God would just really uh, teach our hearts this morning. That, that God would use these truths, these promises that he has given us to awaken our hearts for young and old alike, that all of us would allow our hearts to be open. And so this morning there are some, just a number of heart-probing questions and sometimes where we will just almost pause just to allow the Spirit to do His work. But we see here in verse 6 that Jesus says, this is what the good life is. This is, the, this is the flourishing life, the happy life, is that blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And He says, for they will be filled. Now, very few of us know what it truly means to be hungry or thirsty. Primarily because we have access to good water all day long. And we have access to a refrigerator all day long. Even here at the church, when I'm hungry, I go searching around the church building because I want to fill my belly. I start with first with the, with the youth group to see if they have any extra leftover Little Debbie Zebra cakes back there. And if, if there's nothing back there, then I, I go to the refrigerator and I see is, there's got to be chocolate someplace. Maybe Jennifer Rogers has some left out on her, on her desk up there. Right? We have access to food, don't we? We have access to water. And so very few of us really know what it truly means to be hungry and to be thirsty. But those Jesus was speaking with, they, many of them did not have these luxuries, did they? They didn't have a refrigerator. Sometimes they, didn't, they certainly didn't have a spigot of, of cold running water in their house, so they would have had to have gone to the well. And so what Jesus is doing, he's tapping into that understanding that they would have had of what it means to be hungry, of what it means to be thirsty. And so Jesus' words are calling for a desperation in our hearts and our souls that will not be satisfied with a superficial knowledge of God. It won't be satisfied with just a, a, a minimal improvement in my moral conduct. It, it won't be satisfied on the exterior of, of just following the rules. But instead, what Jesus is describing here is that we would have a deep longing for him. Do you remember the old saying, uh, you are what you eat? Right? We've all heard that, haven't we? 
You are what, what you eat. What, what you hunger after affects what we become. What we hunger after affects what we become. Now, I can say this this week because it's not Donut Sunday. I won't bring this up next week but because it is Donut Sunday next week. But if you hunger, if you hunger after too many donuts or pastries, you kind of start to look like a, a donut in a pastry. You start to become like a donut in a pastry, don't you? If you, what you hunger after affects what you become. And so Jesus is, is, is telling us, he was saying, hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Righteousness is what we should hunger and thirst after, isn't it? Because when we hunger after that, that's what fills our hearts and our minds, and that's what starts to take shape in us. So I ask you the question, what is it that means more to you than anything else? What is it that in your heart that drives your life? What is it that in your heart consumes your thoughts? What is it that when you don't get it, you respond in anger? What directs your impulses? What do you hunger and thirst for? Is it money? Is it a perfect marriage or relationship? Is it the, is it the family all neat and tidy? Is it that next job? Is it a nicer house? What is it that consumes your mind? Think about it. What is it that you hunger and thirst after more than anything? We see here that as followers of Jesus, that as we follow Jesus in the way of happiness, he is telling us, he is saying, the appetite of those who are my new creation, their appetite will be for righteousness. With God's Spirit in us as His new creation, it should only be natural that we would hunger and thirst for Him. To hunger and to thirst for righteousness is a daily practice. It's not simply a, a mountaintop experience, right? The students who are away at Twin Lakes Camp this weekend at a winter retreat, um, oftentimes you come back from that kind of on a mountaintop experience and you have this desire and you say, I'm going to go and I'm going to live for Jesus and you're hungry for it. Or ladies, when you go away this next Friday evening, you get away from, from, from all of the all of the daily activities of your life and you have time to be with other women and to fellowship together and, and to be taught and to be fed God's word in that setting. It's kind of like that mountaintop experience and you come back that filled. And, it's, and that's a good thing. But this is not describing simply a mountaintop experience. Instead, this is describing a daily practice, a daily attitude of our hearts. That in the same way that you wake up in the morning thirsty 
for a good cup of coffee. And some of us don't want to be around you until you've had that good cup of coffee. In the same way that we long for that in a physical way, our hearts should hunger and thirst for righteousness. Every day. And the promise then that is given to us is what? Is that we'll be satisfied. Right? Jesus says it. That those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, what? He says, they will be filled. Those who are famished will be filled. Those who have a starvation in their souls will be satisfied. Jesus told us there, tells us there in John 4, then again in, in John 6, he says, whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Jesus then says, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go, go hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. Jesus gives to us a satisfaction guarantee that when we hunger and we thirst for him, we'll be satisfied. And so as we taste and see that the Lord is good, our hunger and our thirst continues to deepen and it continues to grow the more and more we want to desire him. And so I ask you this, what is it in your life that you hunger and thirst for? And Jesus invites us to reorient our appetites to righteousness, to him. And then next he goes on and he says this, he says, Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. He says, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Mercy is compassion for those in need. In the first half of the Beatitudes, as we've seen, they've reminded us of, of our deep needs and how our needs are met in Christ. And now we almost get this sense that Jesus is now focusing our attention outward toward others. And he's telling us that as our own hearts find satisfaction in Jesus and walking in his way of happiness, now we will want that will overflow out of our, out of our lives and impact other people. And, and he tells us, he says, blessed are the merciful. In other words, those of us who follow Jesus are to be merciful people. The same mercy that has been extended to us by Christ Jesus, we are to extend to other people. The basic idea of mercy is this, is to give help to those who are miserable. The essential thought is that mercy gives attention to misery. Right? So mercy is not just feeling sorry for people. Mercy is not simply just having compassion for other people, but actually mercy is taking the initiative, stepping out and doing something, actively doing something to relieve the needs of other people. Now, this past Friday evening, we had the winter squall of 2022 pass through, didn't we? Right. How many of you were out driving on the roads when the squall moved through? Yeah, some of you, right? The blinding snow, did you all experience that? Right. I was, I was actually doing some sermon preparation at the time at the Panera around the corner from where we live. 
And uh, I saw it moving through, and, and Maren and I, Maren was going to do something with the children that night, and we were debating, should she still go out? What should we do? So I, I made my way home, and as we were going home, the hill in front of our house has become notorious for people uh, not being able to make it up in a snowstorm. All right. The curve is just right where it forces people to slow down and then they can't get traction to get up this hill. And so we have enjoyed for the last uh, couple of snowstorms and probably until Jesus returns or until the city decides to plow our road. Uh, we are privileged with the opportunity of extending mercy to people in need. And actually, it's become kind of fun. So we go out there and we help push these people. It doesn't take much. Well, sometimes it does. We help push these people up the hill. And, and there are lots of sermon il illustrations that are flowing through my mind right now. But I'm reminded, and I, and I hesitate to say it. The reason I say it is, I'll, I'll get to it here in a little bit. I'm a little hesitant to say it because I, I'm not trying to pat myself on the back. But we spend quite a bit of time pushing a lot of cars up that hill. And typically, we tend to be rather alone in that activity. Most people don't want to get out of the comfort of their cars. They would rather scroll on their phone and watch other people extend mercy and them not have to. But this past Friday, there was a gentleman who got out of his car and probably for 45 minutes to an hour or so, gave us assistance in pushing people up this hill. And his name is Chaz, and uh, through the course of the conversation, I found out he's a believer. And I thought to myself, praise the Lord, there's someone else, who, another believer, who understands this is an opportunity to step in and to provide assistance to those who are in need. Now, my wife, after the fact, as she and I were talking about it later in the evening, and we did get to the point later in the night where the, the flow of traffic lessened and people weren't going by, and I actually told Marin, I said, let's kind of turn the lights out here inside, and let's not look out the window, because I'm about at the end of my mercy. Right? I had taken a shower, I was eating a bowl of ice cream, and I was ready to just stay inside. So we turned the lights down low. It's like at Halloween, right? We don't want trick-or-treaters coming, so we turn out the lights, right? And we didn't, so we just didn't look out the windows. But after the fact, Marin and I, we were debriefing that whole scenario. And I told her, I said, yeah, I said, I found out this guy, his name's Chaz, he works at GE, he's got two children. I said, He's a believer. And Maren said, oh, I, I could have told you that. I said, well, what do you mean you could have told me that? Yeah, she said, because I heard him that as we were pushing, he said, holy smokes. And because, let me tell you, the true religion comes out of listening to all those people because we heard a lot of other words being used by the drivers. Like Maren said, I didn't realize Jesus had so many middle names. That as people, as we're pushing people up. And so Maren made the comment. She said, I could just tell by what he's, by his words, by, by his attitudes, by what he said, that he wasn't swearing. He was, he was just helping us push people up, up that hill. And, and I tell that story because I think those are simple ways. Those are simple callings 
that God, sometimes we think about extending mercy, that it has to be extending mercy to, in these deep spiritual needs, and yes, we should, but you know what extending mercy to other people looks like? It looks like helping people in their hour of need when they get stuck in the snow. It looks like giving someone a jump start when their battery is dead. It looks like taking meals to people who have COVID. All of that is extending mercy. Is going out of our way to offer a helping hand. The parable of the Good Samaritan gives us a picture of what mercy looks like, doesn't it? After telling the parable, Jesus asked the question. Many of us were familiar with the parable. And after telling the, the parable, Jesus asked the question. He said, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And Jesus paused. And Jesus goes on and he answers the question. The one who was a good neighbor, the one who, who what? Who showed mercy. Who showed mercy. And then Jesus gives the instruction. You go and do likewise. Church, when the opportunity presents itself to show mercy, to help the miserable, to help those who are in need, do you step into that? The merciful will show compassion and patience to those who struggle with sin. The merciful will be gentle with those who are oppressed. The merciful are always looking for opportunities to restore broken relationships. The merciful have a way of thinking the best of other people. The merciful are sympathetic to the outcast and the underdog. See, those who are unwilling to show mercy to others, they do not understand or see their own need for mercy or have simply forgotten the mercy that that God extends to us. See, if we are unable to, to, to picture ourselves as miserable and in great need of God's mercy, then we will fail to offer mercy to other people. Right? Nothing proves more clearly that we have received God's mercy than by the way that we offer mercy to other people. A failure to take action toward the needs of others really should be a red flag to us in our walk with Jesus. If we're, if we're more content to sit in our comfort rather than go out of our way to help other people, that should be an indication. Wait a second, I, I need to get back to following Jesus. We're told in 1 John 3, 7 that if anyone has the world's goods, 
and sees his brother in need, yet closes his, his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Or there in the parable as well of the unmerciful servant. You might remember that servant who had such a great debt against his employer or his boss. And the boss forgave him of that debt. And yet that, that, that servant who was forgiven much then turns right around and demands from someone who owes him much, much less. What does... The master's response, then the master called the servant. He said, you wicked servant. He said, I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? And so in anger, his master handed him, him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. And he said, this is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or your sister from your heart. Our unwillingness to show mercy is an indication of our heart. And that can be seen with, within family relationships, within sibling rivalries. That can be shown in marriages, or that can even display itself when people are stuck in front of your house on a snowy night. We go on then, and Jesus says, Blessed are the pure in heart, he says, for they will see God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are those who are pure, not only on the surface, right? Sometimes it's, it's, it seems easy. We, we, we kind of try to have a manicured look about us spiritually. We want to convince people. That we've got it all together, but Jesus is not talking about those who appear to have it all together externally. He's talking about those who have a purity inside their heart. Maybe you even remember Jesus' rebuke to the Pharisees in Luke, where Jesus said, Now then, you Pharisees, you clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You foolish people, he said, did not, did not the one who made the outside make the inside also? But now, as far as what is inside you, be generous to the poor, and everything will be clean for you. To be pure in heart gives us this understanding of having a single-mindedness or an undivided devotion. There's a spiritual integrity. There's, there's this deep desire that in our hearts, what we want to do is we have a purity of wanting to obey the Lord. Another word for it is that we're just consistent. That we're consistent. That the person you claim to be when you're here on a Sunday morning is the same person you are when all of your plans fall apart. Is the same person when that you're the same person who raises your hands in worship. And when you're tempted to be angry 
you restrain yourself. It's a consistency is what Jesus is saying. There's, there's a purity that you just don't look good on the outside, but there's a purity inside your heart. And taking inventory of our hearts, I think we can ask helpful questions like this. What do you think about when your mind slips into neutral? What do you think about when you're when it's like you don't have anything else to think about? What what comes to your mind? It shows a purity of heart. What do you find yourself laughing at? Or what jokes do you tell for a cheap laugh, right? What 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 are you laughing at when you're not around other believers? There's a consistency here. Or what images do you slow down for? Or what images do you take an extra long glance at as you are scrolling through your phone? If your internet history could offer a diagnosis of your heart's condition, what would the status be? Is there a consistency? Is there a purity of heart when no one else is looking? Are you willing to cut corners or fudge the numbers, confident that no one will ever discover, discover your deceit? Are you sincere in your motivation toward other people, or do you just do nice things because it will allow people, it will cause people to say nice things about you? See, Jesus is, is telling us that those who are pure in heart are blessed. And, and he says that they, they will be the ones who see God. We have to understand that God is far more interested in who we are than what we do for him. God is far more interested in who we are than what we do. Oftentimes we tend to focus on what we do and we neglect who we are. I can assure you that if we focus and ask the Lord to help change our hearts and who we are, the doing will follow. And the experience, then, Jesus says, is that the pure in heart will see God. Their vision for God will, will become crystal clear because it won't be polluted by the hypocrisy of their lives. I wonder if sometimes we fail to see God because we've failed to live a consistent life with a single-minded devotion for the Lord, free from falsehood. The psalmist wrote these words, Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord? Or who shall stand in His holy place? He that has clean hands and what? A pure heart. Who hath not lifted up his soul unto vanity, nor sworn deceitfully. So I wonder, where is the state of your heart this morning? Is it pure? Is it in focus with God? Do you care about the condition of your heart? Are you making decisions in life in an effort to cultivate a pure heart? Your entertainment choices what you talk about, what you listen to. 
is it cultivating a, a purity of heart, a deeper longing for the Lord so that, Jesus says, so that you might see God. We continue a couple more. Blessed are the peacemakers, right? For they will be called children of God. Whew, blessed are the peacemakers. Uh, a quick scroll on social media uh, will, uh, will be very um, trying in this, isn't it? Because that does not seem to be much of a place of peace. In fact, I find my own heart far from peace after spending time on social media at times. But as Christians, we are called to be a peacemaker, both in our, in our relationships with, with others, within our community, with our neighbors, within our church. The, the, the Greek word for peacemaker actually signifies a harmonious relationship. It's not merely the absence of war, right? It's, it's not merely the absence of conflict, but the, the word signifies two parties who have differences of opinion, who are willing to turn toward each other and embrace one another in spite of their differences. The Hebrew word that's related to this peacemaking is the word shalom, which means not simply the absence of trouble, but it means the state of wholeness where all of life is complete, that life is good, even when the world around you is falling apart. This verse does not describe those who live in peace, but instead, you notice what it describes. It describes those who actually take an effort to bring about peace. Right? We can, we can live in peace, right? Just, just, just within our lives, if life is comfortable and life is good right now, and there's peace, you can just kind of stick it in neutral and not do anything. But what Jesus is calling us to, those who experience flourishing the good life that he has in mind, are those who set out to bring peace into the lives of other people. So I wonder, are you actively and intentionally striving to bring about peace in the lives of other people? Are you, are you working toward bringing peace through the words you say to others? Are you working to bringing peace through your actions? Are you working to bring peace through your evangelism? Telling people about Jesus is a means, is one of the primary means that we can bring peace into a person's life. Inviting them to follow Jesus too. Let's be honest, peacemaking is hard work, isn't it? I mean, the fact of the matter is that most of us want peace, but we're not willing to make peace. Let's think, think about what this peacemaking requires. It requires honesty and humility. It requires a willingness to admit that we're wrong. 
Peacemaker, peacemaking requires a willingness to deal with the real issues at hand. Understand that peacemaking is not, is not just walking away and say, well, whatever, we'll just agree to disagree. Peacemaking is not selling out. Peacemaking means that you're willing to step in and have those conversations and actually work toward peace. Peacemaking requires apologizing. Peacemaking requires hours of listening. I think of Nancy McDonald, who's a counselor. She lives her life about the business of peacemaking. And she spends most of her time listening. Oftentimes, we would rather speak and demand the other person hear our side of the story before we actually stop and listen to theirs. Peacemaking requires thinking through your situation from another person's perspective. Peacemaking is the willingness to risk your own reputation so that others would experience peace. Being a peacemaker requires us to take that first hard step toward reconciliation. Peacemaking actually requires us to take the initiative in bringing peace. And when you think about Jesus, peacemaking involved what? It involved the cross. Where God reconciled all things to Himself and He brought peace through the blood of Jesus' cross. Paul tells us in Colossians 1, he says, For God was pleased to have all of His fullness dwell in Him, to dwell in Jesus, and through Jesus to reconcile Himself to all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven. How? By making peace through His blood shed on the cross. Church, peacemaking will cost you. Peacemaking will require sacrifice. And we're to pursue peace with others in every area of our life and to help others experience this same peace too. To to help them experience shalom. And we will show ourselves to be what? To be sons of God. To be children of God. To reflect the one who brings peace. And as we bring peace into the lives of other people, they'll say, well, they, they look just like their heavenly father. And then we find ourselves, it's kind of an interesting turn of events. Then Jesus ends this first section here, these Beatitudes. Those who want to bring peace, Jesus says, well, guess what? You peacemakers, you're going to be persecuted for it. Right? We we think that the world is going to want to receive our peace. But the opposite is true because Jesus then concludes... Like I said, this first section, the Beatitudes, he says, Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He goes on, he says, Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you. Why? Because of me. He says, Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. 
I like what, how Eugene Peterson paraphrases this. He says, you're blessed when your commitment to God provokes persecution. He says, you're blessed when your commitment to God provokes persecution. The persecution will drive you even deeper into God's kingdom. And not only that, he says, count yourselves blessed every time people put you down or throw you out or speak lies about you or di- to, to discredit me. Peterson continues, he says, what it means is that the truth is too close for their comfort and they are uncomfortable. You can be glad when that happens. He says, give a cheer even, for though the world doesn't like it, I do, Jesus says. And all of heaven applauds. And in this paraphrase, he continues and he says, and know that you are in good company. For my prophets and witnesses have always gotten into this kind of trouble. (laughs) I like that, into this kind of trouble. So we're peacemakers, but in our attempt to be peacemakers, we're also troublemakers. It's helpful to ask, why would the world reject our way of living? Why Why would they turn and persecute us rather than receive us? Well, John helps us understand why we're persecuted. Because in 1 John 3, 11 through 13, we're reminded where John says, for this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. That's the message. But then John takes us all the way back to those two brothers, Cain and Abel. And he says, we should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And then he says, and why did he murder him? Here's why. Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. So don't be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. What we see is the reason why the world will persecute us is because as we live this out, it will shine into the darkness of their souls and they will see the evilness and their hearts will be hardened And they will say, I don't want to turn from my sin. And so they will then, in an attempt to shut you out, they will persecute you. The only place, the only command that Jesus gives us here in this first section of his Sermon on the Mount is found here. And it's in in response of persecution. Rejoice and be glad. Rejoice and be glad. And this is a persecution that is directly aimed at us because we love and follow Jesus and because we live in a way that exposes another person's sin. Not that we are, not that we are uh, holding it over, over people, not that we are doing it in a prideful or a more righteous way or in a legalistic way at all, but simply your life as a follower of Jesus, living in this way, it will agitate other people. And so you might be mocked by friends, family members, and neighbors. You might even be kept out of certain circles because of how you live. You might even be made fun of by other people who claim to follow Jesus because your commitment to purity, because, because you, want a pure, you want to have a purity of heart. And so when they say, hey, let's go to this movie, you say, you know what, guys, I don't think that cultivates a pure heart. And so tonight I'm going to say no. 
then they might make fun of you of that. But rejoice and be glad because your reward in heaven is great. I think possibly one of the greatest tragedies is that many of us do not experience persecution. One of the great tragedies is that a lot of us in here probably would say, I don't experience that very much. And maybe it's because we live too much like the world. Maybe it's because we laugh at the same jokes. Maybe it's because we entertain ourselves with the same movies and music. Maybe it's because we shrug our shoulders at the immoral behavior. Maybe it's because we never share our faith with non-believers. Maybe we don't experience persecution or hardship in this way because we hide the same sins. Or we try to appease the world. Or we compromise and give up ground in areas of our lives that we should never be compromising in. Sometimes a life free of persecution is more of a judgment on our lack of faith or our, insincer- our insincerity toward the Lord than it is a judgment on the world's hatred of Jesus. And our response, Jesus says, is rejoice and be glad. Because in so doing, Peterson says, we are driven even deeper into his kingdom. So here we find ourselves at the end of, uh, at the, end of the Beatitudes. But now next week, we're going to transition then into the salt and light. And what we're going to discover is that those who are salt and light in this world live this out. You, can't, we, you really can't separate this. A lot of us say, I, I want to be a salt. I, a salt. I want to be light for my neighbors. But yet we're re, what we refuse to step into this way. What Jesus is getting at, he's saying that this is, he's saying, come and follow me. Allow me to teach you to live in this way. And in so doing, what is going to happen? You'll step into the world as salt and light. And how do we do this? It's by answering that call. Following Jesus. These aren't characteristics that we can just force ourselves to have. These These are characteristics that grow on us from the inside out. And also, this is not a buffet line. You can't just go pick and choose and say, you know what? Mm, today, I think I'd like to be a meek person. And maybe if I'll, I'll get around to one day being a peacemaker. This, this is not a buffet line. All right, this is something. It's, it's like the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace. Right? We don't go and pick those and say, God, help me to just be a loving person. No, these, this is to be characteristic of all of us. And so all of these characteristics grow and mature in us. And so some of us, we, we read this and it seems like a daunting task. You read this and you let these truths sit on your heart and you say, God, that's what I want. Lord, help me to turn away from all that the world offers me. This, I, I want to be, I want to be pure in heart. I do want to be merciful even after I've taken a shower and had my bowl of ice cream. 
I want to be a peacemaker. And you read this, and I think we can become very overwhelmed. And, it, and, and it's then that our Savior's words should, should, should come into our, our minds. Where Jesus, he just says this. He, he does. He invites us, like the disciples. And he says, come and follow me. Come and follow me. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Come and learn from me. And so the way in which we enter into this isn't by some morning determining and pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps and saying, I'm going to be a peacemaker today. And finally, that relationship that I've been struggling with, I'm going to make peace. Instead, it's a matter of following Jesus. Entering deeper into that relationship and trusting that the invitation that Jesus gives us far surpasses all of the invitations the world has to offer us. And if you ever find yourself doubting that invitation, if you ever find yourself doubting that Jesus truly is inviting you into the good life, the flourishing life, if you ever doubt that, look to the cross. Look to the cross. When was the last time any advertisement offered to take hell on your behalf? They won't. They never will. But he did. And Jesus is committed. He's committed to you. And he's committed to me. And we're assured of that through the cross.